This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. This week on the Hardware Podcast, we've got Brian Jepson. Now, you've heard from Brian before. He is the editor in charge of hardware and electronics uh, here at O'Reilly. Hey, Brian. Hey, John. Great to be here. Uh, you're going to hear from Brian more and more in future episodes of the podcast. We're we're going to bring him on as a as a co-host, really, so that he and David Craner and I rotate through and and get to talk about all the stuff that we're excited about. By the way, if you're wondering uh, why you haven't heard from David in the last couple of episodes, it's because he's spending a lot of the summer in China working on a couple of projects there, and uh, he sends his regards. And we're going to try to get him on from China to talk about what he's up to. But in the meantime, um, it's going to be Brian and me. FPGAs, Field Programmable Gate Arrays. These are bits of electronics that have struck fear into the hearts of many electrical engineers, but they're getting much easier. So wanted to talk with Brian today about some of the projects that he's been looking at that have to do with FPGAs and, and making them more accessible. There's actually a couple of FPGA boards that I'm getting into, and it, it is it is stretching my mind a bit because it's very different. You're not writing a program. You're telling the silicon how to configure itself and setting up mm -hmm. gates. Um, we have a upcoming book from Justin Rajewski of Embedded Micro, and mm. he, what they do at Embedded Micro is they have a really neat board called the Mojo. It's really beautiful board, green and black, and a, a matte black. That, that's really, really a nice finish on it. But it's also an FPGA development board. And it goes for 75 bucks. And the cool thing about what they're doing at Embedded Micro with their platform is they've come up with a programming environment. There I go, using the word programming, which isn't totally correct. Uh, it's a, they have an HDL language to, it's a higher, something that's a little higher level, a little easier than what people are used to for developing for FPGAs. It's built on top of the Xilinx tools, but it's something that's a lot easier, a lot more approachable for beginners and gets people up and running quickly. So I've been starting to learn more about that board and understand the tools that they've developed. I'll probably go a lot deeper as soon as I start reviewing some of the chapters. But it's a book I'm excited about because FPGAs, for someone like me, they, they've they've always been a little bit intimidating. And mm -hmm. one thing that, that grabbed me recently is a friend of mine in Providence, Sean Wallace, grabbed me. Uh, we, were, we were sitting down having, having a drink in a bar, and he grabbed his computer and said, hey, I want to show you something. And he, he took out the lattice semiconductor ice stick, which is, uh, I think it's a $20, $30 USB, FPGA on a USB stick that pl plugs in, plugs in your computer's USB port. And then he turned on his Mac and showed me 
something that was kind of surprising. It, it wouldn't be surprising if it was anything else, but what he was doing is he was building the entire image that was going to get deployed to the FPGA um, synthesis, all these things, you know, the code was getting mm -hmm. synthesized, The it was getting flashed to this stick. So here we are. He's on a he's on a non Windows computer. He's not running any Windows emulation. It's a twenty five dollar FPGA, and he's doing it completely uh, using this free software uh, called Project Ice Storm, which hmm. was created by Clifford Wolf. It's under active development. It's a reverse engineered tool chain. Um, they reverse engineered, documented the bitstream that the lattice. ICE 40 FPGAs use. And and that's a big deal in that, you know, you know, to do FPGA development, you generally get vendor proprietary tools. But more important, right. you know, I've had this debate with myself. You know, we look at how big Arduino and Raspberry Pi are now. And I remember it was about 10 years ago when my friends, it may actually have been Sean as well, would take me aside in a bar, take out a computer and an Arduino, and show me exactly what Sean showed me, which is blinking LEDs. You know, mm -hmm. so does that mean that in terms of you know, the in terms of non-engineers, beginning programmers, makers, hackers, do-it-yourselfers, do I think that FPGAs are now where Arduino was ten years ago? You know, I don't know if you know we're going to see FPGAs everywhere the way that we see Arduinos everywhere, but I, it does look like much in the same way that AVRGCC made it possible for the Arduino IDE to be completely free software and run on Linux, Windows, and Mac without dependency on a vendor's mm -hmm. tool chain, you know, whether it be free or not, the liberty to be able to run it on whatever computer you wanted. And Arduino happened to parallel a time where all of the geeks that I knew we're starting to replace you know, Windows machines and, and even Linux machines. A lot of people during that same time period were moving from Linux and Windows to Mac. And the fact that it just worked on the Mac was, was a big deal. So I see some parallels there. Uh, I have no illusion that you know, FPGAs aren't going to be a replacement for microcontroller boards. There's so many things it's just easier and cheaper to do with a microcontroller board. You know, you can take a, a $2 ESP8266, program it with the Arduino IDE. You've got Wi-Fi, you've got low power, you've got the ability to run code. Why on earth would you replace that with an FPGA when, yeah. when you've got that? But, you know, if you need to handle uh, you know, high-speed, high-frequency situations. You need to implement pieces of software-defined radio. You need to do some things that uh, you know, require parallel computation on different parts of the, the silicon. It can only be a good thing if FPGAs get easier and more accessible. I'm not going to say that they're going to take over the world the way Arduino has, but I was pretty excited about that. So how how is the experience of programming an FPGA these days? Does it still involve thinking, you know, one or two levels lower than, you know, the high level programming languages that a hobbyist is likely to be used to? I, I think so. I haven't done enough programming, but I've looked at examples, run some, and and absolutely. One of the thing the ways I like to think about it is you know, if you're doing PWM on a microcontroller, you're using the interrupts, you're using the timers that are on the chip. If you're doing PWM on an FPGA, you're defining those timers. 
And so what's the excitement about? I mean, what is it that you can do with an FPGA that you can't do with an ordinary microcontroller? As, as you've pointed out, microcontrollers are getting faster and cheaper. They're appearing everywhere. What's, uh, what's lacking? What are people wishing for? Well, let's say that you wanted to acquire data, say a, a, a signal. It could be a radio signal, or you could be creating a device that has to monitor like real-time instrumentation that you might do with an oscilloscope, but let's say you mm -hmm. wanted to create an IoT device that could freak out every time there's a ripple across the signal. Um, mm -hmm. You could do that sort of thing, which you really couldn't do without without that fast, that ability to respond to things very quickly, the fast switching that FPGAs are capable of doing. Yeah, I've seen like really cool demonstrations of you know, entire robots that are controlled with one FPGA. Um, National Instruments has done a couple of these to, you know, illustrate how you program FPGAs using LabVIEW. Um, but it, it's really cool. You know, things that would have taken like eight microcontrollers and getting them to time perfectly is is just a huge hassle. Uh, you can do it with one FPGA. Yeah. There's a product out there called Red Pattaya, which is a really neat FPGA board. And it's able to become two instruments at once. So it could be uh, oscilloscope and a signal generator at the same time. It can also hmm. do software-defined radio applications. So it's very much something that you use in specialized situations. But as people start making more cool stuff, they get into more specialized situations. And software-defined radio has gotten so big that right, right, this right. really opens opens that up. So what are the like the exact next steps uh, if listeners want to you know, have an FPGA delivered to their house and start programming it. What are the pieces that you need to do that? And where do you get them? Great question. Thanks to my friend, Sean, I now know <laughs> what I do. So you would just go out and buy a Lattice Semiconductor Ice Stick Evaluation Kit. Um, you can get it at Mauser, DigiKey, Element 14. And then you would go to Project Ice Storm. So, so you could go to the Project Ice Storm website, download the tools there, and they've got instructions on installing on Linux and Mac. I don't know that they have Windows instructions, but they're probably they may assume that you can just use the native Windows tools if that's what you're doing. Cool, cool. Now, when I think of FPGAs and programming FPGAs, uh, LabVIEW comes to mind, and this is a, a software. It's a graphical programming environment that then compiles into all sorts of you know low-level programming languages, uh, including Verilog which you can then use to configure an FPGA. So do people still need to use LabVIEW or uh, does does this new project uh, obviate that? Well, I think LabVIEW, to this sort of answers the question earlier you had about how low level you have to go. LabVIEW is going to allow you to develop solutions for FPGA at a much higher level of abstraction. And you're, there's going to be more, you're, you're, you're going to be moving around building blocks that are going to represent libraries and IP blocks. So it's very likely that a lot of people are going to choose LabVIEW for working with FPGAs because it simplifies things vastly. What I think this is more of an alternative for the Project Ice Storm is for somebody who is going to be working in HDL and wants to do the programming on a Mac or, or Linux machine without having to run a Windows emulator or boot into Windows. Got it. Got it. Cool. Now, as, as Brian mentioned, uh, we will link to Project Ice Storm 
and other you know resources for getting started with FPGAs in the show notes to this episode, which you can see at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. So we'll move on to our next segment now. This is called Click Spiral. If you, the listener, have a click spiral that you want us to talk about on the show, email hardware at O'Reilly.com. And Brian, David, and I will all kind of click through it, uh, see what's up with it, and talk about it on a future episode of the podcast. So, Brian, what is your click spiral today? My click spiral has been Emacs, actually. I was thinking about chatbots Oddly enough, talking about chatbots with you and and <laughs> reminded of the old Eliza chatbot, one of the earliest ones, and nice. remembered that you could type Escape X Doctor in Emacs and fire that up and, and have a fun chat session there. And then that reminded me some of the other things that, that were there. Um, the There used to be a Zippy the Pinhead quote generator or a quote emitter. Hmm. It just ran off of a file, but apparently that's been removed from Emacs for reasons of copyright. So interesting, but you can add it back in if, if, if you really need to, there was another mode that would allow you to have the chatbot and Zippy, the pinhead talk to each other, which was, it was more of a one-sided conversation, <laughs> but, um, there's also a text adventure, uh, I think I think it's an implementation of Colossal Cave, or maybe it's in that vein. If you type Escape uh -huh. X, done it, D U N N E T. But there's 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 also I don't remember the keystroke to get to it, but there's a Towers of Hanoi. And it's not like these are Easter eggs either; they're sort of features. And there's just all this really weird stuff in, lurking in the hood in in Emacs. And huh. I've been using you know, started that was really my first. Well, my first text editor was probably Edlin on DOS, but um, my first real text editor was probably Emacs, and then I went to the dark side and started using Vim. So here I am today, and uh, there's no text adventure buried in Vim. So Interesting. I, I went into a little click spiral of my own uh, not long ago when I happened across um, you know some dedicated Emacs uh, keyboards. And this is something that David Craner has talked about on previous uh, episodes of the of the podcast, they anticipated a lot of cording, you know. So in in the way that with Emacs you use Escape to sort of switch to a command state, and then uh, and then switch back to to entering. Um, these keyboards involved a lot of a lot of kind of holding down two keys at once and then hitting a command, uh, and so they're printed with all of these specialized keys that are really interesting. They look very unusual. So John, what's your click spiral? My click spiral has to do with this uh, legal concept, probably the best named legal concept that I've come across. Previously, my favorite name for a legal concept was vexatious litigant, which I talked about in an earlier click spiral. But this this one is even better. It's called puffery. And this is the uh, the legal principle that it's OK to exaggerate things in promoting a business in such a way that no reasonable person would possibly take your claims seriously. So you're allowed to say something like, I have the best coffee in San Francisco, because a reasonable kind of consumer wouldn't actually find this to be a, you know, a provable thing and would understand that you're exaggerating for the purposes of marketing your coffee. What you're not allowed to say is, you know, voted the best coffee in San Francisco unless there has actually been a vote or the healthiest coffee in San Francisco or something like that. 
but you can kind of leapfrog those and make the even bolder claim that it's the best coffee in San Francisco, and that is legal. So the case law that helped establish puffery in its modern form was the uh, the monumental matter of Pizza Hut versus Papa John's. This was a, a lawsuit around 2000 when Pizza Hut sued Papa John's over its better ingredients, better pizza slogan that was that they were using in their ads. And Pizza Hut said, that's not even a true claim. And secondly, you know, most consumers can't tell the difference between pizza prepared your way and pizza prepared our way. And so you can't say it's better. And at first, the district court judge held in favor of Pizza Hut and said, um, yeah, you know, Papa John's has has no claim to saying that that their pizza has better ingredients and is therefore a better pizza. And the best part of this is that this judge's decision includes several pages of description of how Pizza Hut and Papa John's manufacture their pizzas. And it's fascinating. Um, it's all written in in this fantastic sort of legal language. But basically, uh, Papa John's makes use of a little bit less freeze drying than Pizza Hut does. But in both cases, the pizza dough is made by a central facility and then shipped to the stores where it's kind of fashioned into pizzas. Um, it's frozen in the case of Pizza Hut and not frozen in the case of Papa John's. Uh, but in blind taste tests, consumers couldn't tell the difference. So the, the initially, the district judge said um, Papa John's wasn't allowed to make this claim. Uh, but Papa John's appealed it, and the the appeals court said, nope, this is covered by puffery. It's this kind of vague, unquantifiable claim, and no reasonable consumer would you know, take it overly seriously as a way of informing a purchase, uh, so they let it stand. Wow. So it's just fascinating as an example of something where you're, you know, it may be illegal to say a mildly exaggerated thing about your product, but it's it's legal to say a very exaggerated thing about your product. Interesting. Now, what about people who say best-selling book? Ooh, that's a good question. Probably there, you do need to have appeared on some bestseller Any list. Any bestseller list will do. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be it could be a regional best-selling list. You know, it could be the uh, Columbus, Ohio Register Democrat. You know, best-selling mm -hmm. books in Central Ohio list. But you know, it 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 has to appear somewhere because that sounds like a quantifiable claim. Yeah, right? yeah it does, it does. But you see it a lot, and they can't all be bestsellers. Yeah, no way. <laughs> what do you think it takes to get on the New York Times bestseller list? How many copies of a of a book do you think have to sell in a week to make it on there? You know. I've seen some some descriptions of that, and I don't remember. Um, there have been instances of companies that offered a service to buy a whole bunch of books. You would pay them, and they would buy the books. And um, yeah, and and they, I don't know that that was ever successful in gaming. One of those, you know, a bestseller list of that caliber, but that certainly was the goal. Right. Right. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia article about the New York Times bestseller uh, list. And uh, back in 2015, the New York Times declined to list Ted Cruz's memoir because uh, the the vast uh, majority of purchases were made by what they call strategic bulk purchases, Ooh. which are meant to inflate uh, sales figures. Wow. Yeah. So that's something that is quantifiable. And something that uh, consumers take seriously. So I think you got to have evidence. But you know, Brian, you can market yourself as the coolest guy in Rhode Island. Yep, uh, oh, and that's, uh, it's, that, it's puffery. That's also quantifiable. Yeah, Donald Trump, by the way, uses puffery as a way to explain certain aspects of his uh, self-promotion that haven't always been truthful. Uh, you know, things about how 
how many units have sold in a building that's not actually selling well. And he's had his wrist slapped because that is not covered by puffery Uh, if you're misrepresenting the financial outcome of a project. Right, right. That can get you in trouble. Definitely. So uh, this has been Click Spiral. And once again, listeners, if you would like to send in a Click Spiral for Brian and David Craner and me to talk about, just email hardware at O'Reilly.com and we'll take a look. All right, Brian, it's been a pleasure talking with you about FPGAs and other stuff, as always. Um, Remind me where people can find you on Twitter. Thanks, John. It's been great to be here. You can find me at B Jepson, B-J-E-P-S-O-N, on Twitter. Excellent. Remember to come back often to the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. We'll be coming out every other week over the summer, and you'll be hearing more from Brian and an update from David Craner at some point about his project in China. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>